Um, and there's a rhythm to how Jesus says it, right? You've heard that it was said, th this thing, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, you don't murder, you've heard this. You're going to remember that as a good teacher who knows his audience, who knows how to, how to get you to remember things, get you to hear things well. He's going to have repetition. He's going to repeat. I think you can make a really strong case that, that Matthew compiled this for us. Now, it might be that Jesus said it on one time on a hill altogether, which would be amazing. Um, I'm open to that. Uh, the point we're making here is, regardless of your view, Matthew gives it to us like this. So we take it like this. And what is Matthew, what is Jesus saying in the form of the sermon as a sermon? That's the question. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. Daniel and I are continuing the study of the Divine Conspiracy. We're moving on to Chapter 5. This is where Willard moves on from the Beatitudes and starts talking about the structure of the bigger sermon itself. We go over the first passage of Jesus' new commandments. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you what these mean, what the structure means, and we try and answer the question, do we think that Jesus actually gave this sermon all at one time? Or was Matthew compiling different renditions of things Jesus had said throughout his ministry and presenting them as its own sermon? So, if any of these intrigue you, stick around and find out. And I hope you enjoy our discussion of Chapter 5 of the Divine Conspiracy. All right, so now we're moving on to chapter five in the Divine Conspiracy. Um, this chapter is called The Righteousness of the Kingdom Heart Beyond the Goodness of the Scribes and the Pharisees. Um, just to set the stage a little bit, um, we've been coming off of um, chapter four, where we talked about, now I'm blanking. Um, <clears throat> we talked about, oh yeah, so sorry. That was the Beatitudes, and we talked about yes. how it's um, redefining what it means to be blessed. Um, and this leads, I think, really smoothly into our subject matter in chapter five, um, where Willard is talking about what it actually means to be righteous um, and what Jesus means by, you know, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, so these two things sit, I think, really well side by side. Um, so I'm going to start us off by reading a quote from C.S. Lewis that he places at the beginning of the chapter. And then Luke, you can go into reading the passage for today, okay. um, that we, that Willard is going to be going through in this chapter. Now I will say in our covering of chapter five, we will not be covering the entire chapter as is usual. Um, but there is actually a significant section of the chapter that we won't be talking about at all. I think it's one of the most important sections of the book, but I also think that we, we could very easily get bogged down in the details. And so we're, we're skipping over that because one, we hope that all of you listening will pick up the book and read it. And two, um, and maybe if y'all want us to come back and talk about that later in a Q and R thing, we may do at the end, let us know in, in the comments. Um, but the, 
the main thesis of this chapter we see is something that's an overarching point that we really want to nail down. And so yeah. we don't want to get bogged down in the other stuff that's very good and very practical. Um, we're trying to extract this one very crucial point that Willard is making that I think really can genuinely change the way we as Christians exist in the world. Uh, I, I see these next few episodes as some of the most important that we've done um, because I think if we fully grasp what Willard is saying, it could change us as people um, in, in a really good way. So with that said, um, I'm going to read this quote yeah. from C.S. Lewis, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Luke, do you have anything to, to add real quick? I would just encourage you to get the book. I'm, it's the latter half of this chapter, which we're not going to cover, is... So I've read this book since high school. This is the third or fourth time I've read the book. And even having read it multiple times before, I was as I was rereading the end of chapter five, I kept, like with any great book, I would read three, four pages, and I'd set it down because... I didn't want to keep going. I needed to think about what he had said. And so we won't talk about this. We'll, you'll hear it in the passage, but as he specifically talks about the nature of anger, of lust, of, of greed, or of repu need for reputation, um, and those will come in, those will be hammered in, in the subsequent chapter. But as he talks about how these things impact our lives. It is, uh, he leaves you, you know, naked to deal with your own insufficiencies in a certain way. And it's, it's just very sobering, but it's not, he doesn't beat you up. He's, uh, he's gracious and he, he basically invites you, as Jesus does, to say, well, yeah, that's why the kingdom is at hand. It's, it's available to you because there's a different way to operate than these, these modes of being that you are so familiar with. And so even having read it four times, I still put it down every few pages because there's other things I realized that I didn't see last time, like with any great book. I didn't see last time, and the way he says this thing hits me in a certain way. And so, yeah, pick up the book, read it, uh, if not for chapter five, if not for, you know, chapter two. Uh, so, so, yeah, just implore you, pick it up, read it. Uh, I think I'm going to go back and for the episodes well, I'm actually recording this before we publish any episodes on the chapters in Divine Conspiracy, which is wild. Um, but I will be sure to link in every episode that discusses this book, the book, so you can go get it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so um, Willard starts with a quote from Luke, but I'm going to jump down to the quote from um, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Um, he says... The command, be ye perfect, is not 
idealistic gas, nor is it a command to, be, to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. Be perfect. Become the kind of creature that can fulfill that command. That's what we're talking about today. So, Luke, if you would like to read the passage. This it'd is, be my, uh, it'd be my pleasure. This is yeah. Matthew 5 20 through uh, 40. 48. 48. The end of the, the end of the chapter. Okay. I'm going to read from 17. Okay. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, Will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, uh, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judges and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate for divorce. But I say to you that whoever, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simple, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is doing evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Those are some of the most beautiful words I think ever written. But... Um, and do you have any opening comments? No. Okay. We've talked at length about the the final portion of that passage. Um, mm -hmm. Just watch our videos on Jonah. But yeah, yeah. Um, I think if if you don't see it, if you don't hear it. Jesus is at once raising the bar. You've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He is not, and we will get into this here in a minute. He is not as concerned with He's not as concerned with the exact action you do than with the reason you do it. I, I think he's far less concerned with the action that you do than the internal condition that produces that action. Mm. Um, and that'll be a theme that stretches throughout today. So... <clears throat> This is something that we're about to get into something that Willard consistently comes back to in the book. And I think it's worth mentioning one more time um, simply because I think it would help. Willard uses it to frame the conversation that he has in this chapter. And I think we should use it to frame the conversation that we have based on this chapter. So his opening section is master of moral understanding. This is on uh, the first page of chapter five. He 
says, when Jesus deals with moral evil and goodness, he does not begin by theorizing. He plunges immediately into the guts of human existence, raging anger, contempt, hatred, obsessive lust, divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, and begging. It is the stuff of soap operas and the daily news and real life. He takes this concrete approach because his aim is to enable people to be good, not just talk about it. He actually knows how to enable people to be good, and he brings his knowledge to bear upon life as it really is, not as some intellectualized and sanctified version thereof. And I'll read just this, this uh, first paragraph on this page. He knows that people deeply hunger to be good, but cannot find their way. No one wishes to do evil for its own sake. We just find it unfortunately necessary. We want to be good, but are ready to do evil and become prepared with lengthy justifications. Mm. So I'm going to take us on a tangent, Luke, if you don't mind, uh, because I just realized uh, this semester I've been taking a class called God and the Problem of Evil, and the entire class is focused on the theodicy problem, uh, which at some point I'd love us to dive into on the channel, but um, it'll be probably some time before we get to that with everything else we have planned, which is totally fine. Um, But in my first paper for the class, I wrote on the problem of evil not a theodicy itself, but just focusing on what evil is and how evil manifests itself. Um, For that, I use two resources. Um, No one will be surprised, St. Augustine, um, and a sociologist who studied the um, social... Catholic at this point. No, I see it's the parts of his theology that Catholics emphasize that I actually dislike. It's everything else that I love. Um, (laughs) And I mean, no disrespect to any Catholics. Um, I I do have a lot of respect for a lot of um, Catholics throughout history. But anyway, um, being a little tongue in cheek, I guess. Um, So the, the other person that I used is a sociologist named Fred Katz, who did a lot of sociological studies on evil taking place. In, his book is actually called Ordinary People, Extraordinary Evil, or maybe mm. reverse that, Extraordinary Evil, Ordinary People, so, something like that. Um, and the basic thesis of the book is that um, it is ordinary people every day that commit some of the most egregious kinds of evil imaginable. And it's not because they are evil. Um, He uses the Nazis in the Holocaust as his primary example of ordinary people. Now we think, oh, those were horrible, horrible people who reveled in the misery that they, and and to a degree that that's correct, right? Reveled in the misery they inflicted. Mm. But it didn't start that way. Mm. And thinking, oh, those were horrible people, not like me, I'm an ordinary person, is actually the same frame of mind that led to the Nazis um, doing what they did. 
He has, it, it's a wonderful study, very deep, very dark, very heavy. Peterson actually talks about this a good bit as well. Um, and so I, I think that's th this last paragraph from Willard, he's touching on that point, right? We find evil necessary. Fred Katz talks about how evil gets packaged with higher goods. We do evil because mm. there's a good that we have in mind mm. that we can, we think we can only achieve if we're willing to do certain bad things. And I ultimately think that's what ends up um, resulting in things like the Holocaust, um, the Russian Revolution, where millions and millions of people died, um, the Chinese Revolution, where the exact same thing happened. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, I just listed several revolutions. That's not to say that movements against abuses of power are bad, although I do think that those historical situations were a lot more complex than that. Um, the, most of the time, the evils we commit are done for very good reasons. And they're done by ordinary people, everyday people you'd find on the street. And so Willard's point that this, this passage in, um, in the Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus getting into the thick of life, the nitty gritty, messy bits of life and actually telling us how to be transformed and do it differently. Hmm. That's important. Because if we don't get that, we can very easily end up just like your run-of-the-mill Nazi concentration camp worker. Which is a scary thought. But recognizing in that we all have the capacity to become that, I think is the very thing that will hopefully prevent us from becoming that. And that is what Jesus, I think, is trying to point out in this passage. You all have the capacity to do these evil things, not even in the most explicit way possible. But think about the way that you murder your brother or sister in your heart. So I'll, I'll stop my little rant there. Luke, do you have anything to, to add on that point? No, I think that was great. It's a wealth, worthwhile tangent. All right. So the next, um, the next section we're going to look at with Willard um, is a, another, I think, really important point to make when talking about the Sermon on the Mount in general. Um, it's on page 149, Luke, the, uh, the talk on the hill. Um, and with this, Willard is going to talk about how it's important to not see the, um, the Sermon on the Mount is broken up into small chunks that are unrelated to each other. A lot of biblical scholarship likes to focus on the, the source criticism and the redaction criticism and try to break it up and see if maybe these were different talks that Jesus gave and that the, um, the author of Matthew arranged them together but they were originally given separately. And that's probably true. Because, um, and for 
and just to to give reason for that view yeah because there are other gospels where he says similar statements but ties them together in different ways or puts you know them puts one next to the other that he doesn't put here or he gives a different kind of anecdote story along with the teaching but it's or, still the same nugget yeah like the the um the section on let me let me look real quick i think it's the section on um oaths maybe he gives in a, in a different point in um in a different gospel and he says a few different things about it. And, and this happens a good bit with, with the Gospels, right? As they have stories and they're arranged slightly differently or different details are included or excluded, things like that. Shouldn't worry us at all. Um, go back and listen to our you know, episodes on canon and that should maybe help, although this is slightly different. Um, but the, the important point that Willard is going to make in this little paragraph that I'm going to read is that we, if we're focusing on that, we miss that Matthew, the author of Matthew put these together in a way that flows logically. And I think constitute the thrust of Jesus message throughout his entire ministry. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't just like, oh, Matthew threw something together. No, this is Matthew taking the work of Jesus that may or may not, I mean, I, I tend to think that this was probably something that Jesus gave so many different times in so many different ways that what Matthew did was not arrange it in a certain way. Matthew tried to condense it into a mm -hmm. easily digestible format, but that's neither here nor there. The, the point being, we need to read the Sermon on the Mount as a sermon. One, one chunk that is taken together and naturally flows from section to section. Because if we break it up, then we lose the thrust of what is actually being said. Right. And you get the, you get the refrain even in the passage as we read it in the beginning. Uh, you know, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, but I, and Willard's going to argue rightfully, and this is the latter half of the chapter that we're not really going to get to, by the way, uh, that there's a reason for the order in which he talks about the things he talks about, which I think is profound. And so pick up the book if you want to know why that is. Um, I agree with Willard's uh, summation on that. And to the point of what did Jesus give this all in one time? Uh, a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it. Doesn't, I don't think it matters. Like you said, like, I mean, uh, Marty Solomon, if you're familiar with the Bible podcast has made this point, right? And Marty's point is what you just, I believe what you just said. He probably gave it so many times that disciples could quote parts of it. Yeah. right um and there's a rhythm to how jesus says it right you've heard that it was said that this thing but i say to you you've heard that it was said you don't murder you've heard that you're gonna remember that right the yeah. same way we remember the bad blessed are those who are in this state 
but they enter the kingdom and they're in this state. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Like there's a, as a good teacher will do, as someone who's, who's, who knows his audience, who knows how to, how to get you to remember things, get you to hear things well. He's going to have repetition. He's going to repeat. And so I, I think you can make a really strong case that, that, uh, that Matthew compiled this for us to put it all together. Now, it might be that Jesus said it on one time on a hill all together, which would be amazing. Um, I'm open to that. Uh, the point we're making here is regardless of your view, this is why we're canon, guys. Regardless of your view, Matthew gives it to us like this. So we take it like this. And what is Matthew, what is Jesus saying in the form of the sermon as a sermon? That's yeah. the question here regarding yeah. the text. No, absolutely. So I'll read this section on uh, page 149. <clears throat> um how does the, oh, the first paragraph is why then is it important to understand Matthew ah, 5 got it. 7? Got it. Cool. Go ahead. Um, so it's, I'm just going to read this one paragraph. Um, why then it is important, uh, is it important, excuse me, that we should understand Matthew 5 through 7 as one talk or sermon? It is important because unless we understand it as one discourse, purpose, purposively organized, by this highly competent speaker, its parts, the particular statements made, will be left at the mercy of whatever whims may strike the reader as they contemplate each pearl of wisdom. Their meaning cannot be governed by the unity of the discourse as a whole. And this is, for the most part, exactly what happens today. Postmodernism. So, I was about to say that. This is a point that Jordan Peterson makes a lot, is that when you're writing an essay, each word contains some meaning, but its meaning is not independent of the sentence that it's in. And the meaning of the sentence isn't independent of the paragraph. And the meaning of the paragraph isn't independent of the meaning of the essay itself. And the meaning of the essay isn't isolated from the meaning that it brings in the cultural conversation that's taking place at the time. And that's not divorced of the history of ideas. And so we can't do the same thing with Jesus' words. I've heard, um, and I might've brought this up before, if I did, I apologize, but I think it's a really good example of this. Um, in in one of my classes in New Testament, we talked about how um, one, one, one of my classmates in our class, when we were talking about sections of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus talking about forgiveness, forgive 70 times seven, and yada, yada, yada. Um, we, we had this, uh, one, of, one of my student, one of my fellow students said, um, you know, why, why do you have to forgive 70 times seven? You're just letting yourself be abused at that point. I don't really like understand why you have to keep going back to this person. And I said, no, 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 no. You're, you're misreading what Jesus is saying because all you're hearing is endless forgiveness. And you're not hearing the stuff he's saying around it. He's not saying to continuously go back and be abused by the same person over and over 
over again. He's saying that if you don't forgive them, your, your unforgiveness will turn to bitterness and it will destroy you. Mm. You can't just cut and paste one sentence out of what Jesus is saying in the, in the movement of this, because that's exactly what happens. I don't think that's a really good way to live your life because then you're just subjecting yourself to abuse constantly. No. And one of the points Jesus made in this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we just read is if you're being taken to court, try to settle the dispute out of court, because if it goes to court and you genuinely get wrong, you're going to get it. And so it's better for you to try to rectify it away from the court system as friends than it is for you to be taken to task because you genuinely did something wrong. Hmm. Again, it's about being a certain kind of person, not, right. not um, doing a certain kind of action. So um, I want to, I want to read, I highlighted half of it. I just want to read real quick the next paragraph from what you just had. Go for it. He says, uh, the most constant whim historically has been the disastrous idea just mentioned, taking it the whole for its parts, that Jesus is here giving laws. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, for if that is all he is doing, they will certainly be laws that are impossible to keep. The keeping of law turns out to be an inherently self-refuting aim, rather than the inner self must be rather the inner self must be changed. Trying merely to keep the law is not wholly unlike trying to make an apple tree bear peaches, or trying or by or by or by tying peaches to its branches. And this is, this is what we're talking about. Yep. The goal of Jesus's, the goal of Jesus's words about the law are not to give you another law, just like the Beatitudes are not meant to give you a desirable state of being in their, in in their words of your condition, right? You're not blessed because you mourn. You are blessed because when you mourn, you shall be comforted. You are not blessed because you're poor in spirit. You are blessed because when you're poor in spirit, the kingdom will come upon you. Same thing here. You are not good if you only do not murder. But watch out because there's anger in you. And what are we going to do about that? Well, we'll find out. But if you read the book, if you read the yeah. book. So um, if you could pull up the quick outline that he gives, um, I believe it's on page 154. Um, mm -hmm. We can talk just a little bit about the sermon structure as a whole. 
Um, and then we can go from there into talking about a few uh, more specific things. So okay. the, um, this the first section, he starts out by saying that Matthew 4, 17 through 25 form the background assumptions about the life in the kingdom through reliance on Jesus. So this is Beatitudes. This is really everything that we've talked about in the book thus far, um, defining what is kingdom um, and what is Jesus' kingdom. What does it mean to, to live in that? What is the right kind of gospel? That kind of thing. The second point is that ordinary people who, uh, it is ordinary people who are the salt and light of the world as they live the blessed life in the kingdom, right? So this is the Beatitudes, right? So we start with what kind of kingdom, the basic assumption, then we go to who is blessed. Then in this section that we're covering today, the kingdom heart of goodness concretely portrays, uh, portrayed as the kind of love that is in God. So the way we live our lives now should be an extension of the love of God manifest in the, in the way in which we exist, not just in our actions, but in our whole being. Section four, he says, is a warning against false securities, uh, reputation and wealth. This will be covered when we talk about chapter six. The next section, warning against condemnation engineering um, as a plan for helping people. Mm. So this is um, a talk about how to best help people become transformed. It's not, you don't condemn them into righteousness. You call them into righteousness. Mm. And that's important because people don't usually respond well to condemnation. Correction is needed. Calling is needed. Condemnation almost never gets the job done. And if it does, it's only within the context of a and prayerful short, community. And it's short term. Yeah, yeah. And it's only within the context of prayerful community, as he highlights here, right? A community of prayerful love. Because you only, the only people who could condemn me are the people who I know care about me, mm. right? If my wife says, hey, Daniel, that really wasn't cool. You know, that was like, and, and she's just really letting me have it. My first thought is, should be, okay, what did I do wrong? How did I do it wrong? Did I do something wrong? And how can I make it better? But if someone on this, you know, walking on the street as I'm, you know, downtown or whatever starts laying into me, or if someone that I kind of know really is letting me have it, I just see them as a jerk. So you have to be careful with the way that we encourage people to take up this kingdom life. And then the last bit, um, warnings about how we may fail actually to do what the discourse requires and the effects thereof. 
So warnings about ways in which we can fall short of this mark. So that is the outline of the sermon. That's the main thrust of chapter five. Uh, we have a little bit more that we'll get into, um, but I think now is a good place to stop. Thank you.